You're listening to Two for Tea. I'm your host, Iona Italia. And I'm her frequent co-host, Helen Pluckrose. This is a podcast about politics, society, science and art. And about how everyone is wrong apart from us. This podcast is brought to you in association with ARIO magazine, a digital forum for calm, reasonable voices from across the political spectrum. The podcast is entirely listener-supported. To become a patron and gain access to patron-only broadcasts and other perks, support us on Patreon at 2 for Tea. Welcome to The Conversation. Hello, everybody. Today, I'm joined by my frequent co-host, the indomitable Lady Helen Pluckrose, who is joining us from London. And our guest this week is Ali Rizvi. Ali is a doctor, musician, writer, podcaster, and campaigner. He is the author of one of my favorite books, The Atheist Muslim. And he's also uh, involved with uh, ex-Muslims of North America and a group called the Secular Jihadists who have their own podcast. Welcome, Ali. Thank you very Did much. Did I forget anything? No, that's that's great. Thank you very much for uh, having me on. And uh, before we start, I have to let you know that I was so excited when both of you got together to do this podcast because I'm a huge fan of of both of you and just uh, Helen and but both of your uh, all of your uh, everything that you write is is so sensible and so reasoned um and the way that you do it is is just sorely missing in the kind of discourse that we have today so uh congratulations on all of the great work you've done and I'm really glad that uh, you're doing this podcast and I'm I'm very honored to be on it we're, we're oh, very thank you so you. much. <laughs> yes, yeah, <a> very kind. <laughs> oh, I don't know what to say. I'm all for Klempt now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, so, Ali, I first became aware of your work about three years ago when my friend uh, Zubin Madden, um, who I believe you also know, recommended your book, The Atheist Muslim, to me. Mm-hmm. And... That is one of my two favorite books that have been written about Islam. The other one, which is very different, is uh, Zudi Jasser's book, A Battle for the Soul of Islam. Right. But I love the way in which, in The Atheist Muslim, um, you strike a balance between a need to get away from the teachings of the religion from and and yet retain a sense of belonging. Mm-hmm. And for a while, I was calling myself an atheist Zoroastrian, but I stopped because people got so offended. Um, <laughs> but I, um, because belonging is extremely important to me, so being a Parsi is very important to me, and being Zoroastrian is very important to me. And I guess I'm not completely an atheist because I do sort of, I do send out a message or two just in case anybody is up there even though I think that's probably quite insane. But um, I also feel that it's important to me to have um, rituals and structure. So um, I wanted to thank you for writing that book, which had which struck such a beautiful balance. Uh, thank you. And, and that is actually one of the aspects uh, that I wanted to get across is that I... I think that the real importance of religions nowadays is um, 
really that sense of belonging that is a part that people enjoy the most i mean uh, there even richard dawkins who you don't get more atheist than richard dawkins and even he says that he enjoys singing christmas carols and uh, you know he enjoys celebrating christmas and uh, he has actually said that the <laughs> that the that the more religious christmas carols i'm paraphrasing him like, like silent night are nicer musically uh, and more enjoyable than the sort of frivolous non-religious ones like jingle bells which are crap uh, essentially so he um i think there is there, there's something that we grow up with and just like every, all of our, our other childhood memories and and associations and um just you know our times with family and and the the, the sort of things that we remember from childhood uh, a lot of people have that with these religious rituals as well and i wanted to especially in in the muslim community there there's this really uh there's this terrible thing that it all of it has to come with the burden of ideology and one of the most one of the most um i think sinister things about religion in abrahamic religion in particular is the way it gets its the ideology gets its tentacles into people's sense of identity so that uh, you know if you change your mind about the belief if you just say well you know i want to think differently about this or i want to explore other ideas or other explanations about how the universe arose or my morality and how we should live our lives if you want to explore any of those questions and you want to abandon the belief then you have to let go of all of this all of the, the positive associations uh, you had you you're going to lose your family you know you're, you're going to be uh, disowned uh, your community will reject you uh, and and that's a really really big burden and and you know for that reason i am uh, I, I am both sympathetic to uh, muslims who are sort of leaning towards atheism but don't leave the religion because i know that the cost of letting go is very very high and yet I, at the same time i'm i'm also very um awed by the courage of those who do dare to leave it and do dare to leave all of those things behind and it's it's a it's a tough kind of situation and i i feel like these two groups sometimes don't see the eye to eye on uh, on things but uh, i have sympathy and and respect for both yeah do do you think sometimes we we seem to be dealing with sort of three different elements within religion there's there's all those psychological and social needs that are sort of wrapped up in ritual and belonging and then there's the the epistemological is this true and how do we know it's true and then there's the ethical well even if it's if it's true or not or if we need it or not is it good for us and i've i've tended to to think that within the whole sort of um, atheist skeptic movement in as much as there ever was a coherent one, it, it's kind of a split between those who are focusing on the the ethics, women's rights, LGBT rights, those who focus almost sort of um, dogmatically, one of, just sort of robotically really try to cut out all of the psychology and the ethics and focus um, entirely on, on what is true, which I, I am prone to, I have to admit. And and then there's there's those who seem to manage to leave it all behind and um, and yeah just just go with the the social and psychological things and I, I think particularly um, secular Jews have sort of um, managed a way to do this for much sort of um, earlier than the than the rest of the ex sort of Abrahamics. Do do, do you get a, a sense that that there's sort of a divide along those lines um, in the ex-Muslim? 
community. Yes, I, I think that that I think you nailed it. Um, that that really is, especially with the ex-Muslim community, because there there are so many um, sort of political consequences of the religion itself. So a whole separate dialogue is about religion. Uh, sorry, is about terrorism and jihad, and you know, is Islam more dangerous than other religions? Is is it a, a, a is it a matter of the fact that, you know, it's at it's this time in history that it's the most dangerous, or are all are, are all religions equally toxic? Like, there's that extra element of of uh, conversation in addition to you know the, what you described. Is and in in my book, I, I said that I came to it, um, I came to atheism, I came to sort of abandon Islam uh, in the pursuit of truth, not necessarily the pursuit of justice. Um, now, neither of these is wrong. I mean, I, I, there are many people who have been very oppressed by the religion. I take the case of someone like Ayan Hirsi Ali, you know, who underwent FGM and she, she's a woman in, in Somalia, uh, which is a completely different thing to me as a, as a man in Pakistan. It's a completely different story. And she was genuinely oppressed by the religion. She had to escape a forced marriage and, and uh, the way that she came out of it, th- there was a lot of her journey out of Islam had to do with the pursuit for for justice uh, for me in contrast i generally have a family that did not abandon me that you know encouraged me to question even though they were religious uh, they weren't dogmatically religious in the sense that they would disown me um i i generally have positive associations with certain rituals like ramadan i, I was never forced to fast I was never forced to pray um, so I, I have a different experience of it. And, and for me, the journey was more sort of intellectual in terms of trying to find out what is true, which is, I think, what, what you're, uh, you lean towards too, Helen, based on what you said. Yes, um, so, absolutely. So different people have different experiences. They have different stories. And the way that this plays out, uh, the way that it manifests itself in, in, in terms of how they express uh, their ideas and their feelings and their thoughts is, is varied. You know, so for instance... Uh, whereas if I hear the adhan, right, the prayer call, I, I think of it as as melodic. I, I I have some positive associations with that. I think it's it's a very nice melody. I can appreciate it on a musical level, you know, in, in a way that Sam Harris has also written about, where he appreciates the kawali form and the adhan, and he and he understands the beauty and the melodic allure of it. Uh, on the other hand, my my friend Yasmin Muhammad, who I, I think you guys know too, um, mm. she was. Uh, she was very oppressed and she was forced to be religious and forced to cover herself up growing up. And uh, she has extremely negative associations with it. So often, I mean, she's talked about it, even when she hears things like that, she feels triggered and it's emotionally upsetting for her. Uh, so, so people come from many different kinds of experiences. And one note I would make is, uh, you know, Phil Zuckerman uh, has written about this and he's talked about mild apostasy versus transformative apostasy. And transformative apostasy would be someone like the case of Ayan Hirsi Ali or the case of Yasmin Muhammad. Uh, a mild apostasy would probably be someone like me or someone like Richard Dawkins, uh, you know, where we um, have some cultural elements or the secular Jews that, that, that you mentioned, Helen, where, uh, you know, these are uh, people who have some positive associations, they retain some of the ritualistic elements of it, uh, but they have secularized those those rituals, uh, you know, in the religion. So I, 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 th- I do think, I, I think that's a very good point. And people do come to it from 
uh, many different places. You know, some people like to have a debate about what is true. Other people talk about, you know, whether this is a good thing or a bad thing for society. Um, other people like to talk about, you know, what the moral aspects are. And then other people talk about the political, uh, you know, aspects, how, how this affects uh, people politically in the world. So, um, and everybody has these stories and, and we should really look at them from where they're coming. I absolutely agree. I I do think, um, particularly among the um, sort of broadly ex-Christian atheists, um, the that there's been a particularly strong divide between um, those who are looking at um, sort of social justice in a in the very sort of um, Western context, and those who are looking at um, you know from the the new atheist epistemological one where there there's almost um no overlap now and I, I i do think that's that's a shame but i i noticed with the whole sort of atheist new atheist movement it seemed that it started with people from a sort of christian and, and jewish um background and then a, a sort of second wave of energy came in from from the ex ex muslims which which is still sort of going quite Growing quite strong, while the um, the sort of um, the, the the sort of ex-Christian input has has died down quite a, quite a lot now. Are, are you are you finding that? Yeah, I I look at it a little bit uh, differently. Uh, so you know, I I think that the atheist movement. I mean, there were atheist writers for, for everybody from Bertrand Russell and you know George Carlin to Bill Maher. All of these people were talking about the sort of the ex-Christian, ex-Jewish type thing. And then I, I think what would distinguish the new atheism movement is that uh, these sort of the, um, the the people who led it, like Sam and, and like Richard Dawkins and uh, Christopher Hitchens, they actually talked about Islam. They brought Islam into the fold. That, I think, was a big distinction, one of the big distinctions between new atheism and the discourse that had been happening before. I mean, at, at least uh, two of them were motivated by, you know, the events of 9-11. I know, I know Sam was, he started writing The End of Faith um, after seeing what happened on 9-11. And I know Richard Dawkins, when he did that that, uh, that TED Talk, the, the case for militant atheism, uh, that was triggered by 9-11 as well. That's when he decided to speak out. So uh, I, I think that that was one of the things that made new atheism unique and different and even more controversial is because uh, these guys, uh, they decided to take on Islam as well as the other two religions and speak about it uh, just as um, uh, just as fiercely as, as they did the others. And what that happened is that, uh, you know, it, it caused a reaction, uh, you know, and I think Sam got the brunt of it because his book, The End of Faith, which started the whole thing in 2004, uh, got a lot of uh, criticism because, you know, it was... It was it, it focused on Islam quite a bit. And uh, eventually the ex-Muslim movement started forming. Um, uh, well, it was it was happening anyway, and I think it was happening largely because of the internet and people connecting. But I think this sort of galvanized it or gave it a, a, another, an additional push. And you saw a little bit of a lag, but then these ex-Muslims started uh, sort of rising up and speaking out in the same way. So I, I actually think that... Uh, I, I don't think that the ex-Muslim movement, as such, began as a uh, independently of the new atheist thing. I, th I think it was actually quite uh, it was it was part and parcel of it. And, and most ex-Muslims that I, sp I speak to, 
um, an overwhelming percentage of them, I mean, this is admittedly anecdotal, uh, but many of them were inspired by the God delusion. You know, they mm. read the God delusion. They read some of these. They watched some Richard Dawkins videos. Uh, that that's almost always. They always talk about Richard Dawkins as as a huge influence. And you know, Mariam Namazi started uh, the Council of Ex Muslims of Britain uh, in two thousand and seven, and she had been doing this for longer uh, before that. But it really started uh, getting some traction after. I mean, God Delusion was written. It was published in two thousand six. Uh, so that that was a huge part of the conversation. It's really interesting to me that, um, you know, when I'm reading the God Delusion or um, Hitchens' book, God is Not Great, or any of those other extremely harsh condemnations of religion, I feel personally a little bit uncomfortable um, that, you know, if I were going to critique religion, I wouldn't be that harsh. But I've noticed that people who grew up in those religions and who were oppressed by that ideology find it so refreshing um, to hear this no-holds-barred, very strong, very extreme, very clear condemnation. Yeah, I, I, I think that that's, uh, th- that's true. And, and, it's, and there's a reason for that. And I've, I've written about this uh, in, in my book as well, is that uh, the, generally the, the people that I talk to in the Muslim world, people in Saudi Arabia and Pakistan and, and Bangladesh and so on, uh, these are people who don't have the luxury of um, having sort of uh, speaking about this in nuanced and conciliatory and diplomatic ways. Right? They they don't have the, that kind of freedom of speech. They they are faced with blasphemy laws, punishments for apostasy, um, just you know, condemnation by the mob and persecution by the mob uh, for even speaking about this topic. So uh, they they can't afford to be uh, respectful the way that we can. They look at it as a as as a luxury uh, for people who enjoy free expression in open societies. Mm. And so when someone like uh, Dawkins or someone like Christopher Hitchens comes out and and says what they say and it just you know throws down the hammer, then they um, they find it very refreshing and they find it inspiring. And and well, usually, I... yeah, go ahead. Oh, sorry, I was just going to say that. I mean, I feel very strongly in general, not just on this topic, but the whole idea that people should stay in their lanes and should not critique other cultures um, is very counterproductive. I think, on the contrary, that um, if you have freedom of speech, um, if you're in a situation where you are not endangered by telling the truth, then you have a duty to speak out on behalf of people who cannot. Yes, I and th- that's the number one reason that I uh, decided uh, to write the book and start writing about this as well is is because you know I, I until the age of twenty four I lived in uh, Libya, Saudi Arabia, and Pakistan. Those are the three places I lived. They're all Muslim majority countries. They're very different culturally in a lot of ways, but um, uh, there was enough that I saw there, enough that I experienced there uh, to just think that when I am in a place where I can speak out openly, I am not going to take that for granted for a single day, you know, for n- not even once. And that that was a promise that I made myself. And I, I'm in a very privileged position. Uh, you know, I, I, I don't have a lot of uh, risk. I, I live in Canada. 
I, I don't have a lot of uh, loved ones back home. Most of my family's here. So I'm in a position where I can speak out and I know how, you know, one of, a, a, one of one of my really close friends, uh, Raif Badawi, he's in prison and he's, he's been flogged. And, you know, I, I meet his, his wife and his kids all the time and they haven't seen their father for six years. And mm. it's heartbreaking when you, I mean, you, you hear about that and you read about it and it, it affects you. But so when I meet these kids, I see that it's how devastating it is that, that they have been separated from their father and their father is being persecuted in Saudi Arabia for doing exactly what I do here. You know, and that's right about secularism, not even atheism, but just separation of religion and state. Um, and, you know, and, and he, he, he wrote about it and he went to jail for it. He's fined for it. He was flogged for it. Uh, whereas I am in this privileged position where I am and I'm, I'm doing speaking tours. Right. And that is uh, just that enough. Uh, makes me think that it is a, it's it's almost a, a moral obligation for me to speak out, you know, because of of the kind of privilege that I have. Mm. I, I I think often what very very well intentioned people um, tend to do is because it is actually genuinely true that some people will argue that um, Western culture, Western religions, Western people are just generally morally um, superior to everywhere else, then this tends to then hit uh, those of us who are actually addressing a very sort of universal liberal humanist principle and are not um, not in, in no way coming from this um, position of... Um, anyway racialized moral superiority but these just tend to get blended in so much together at the moment it's it's almost as though to be um a, a never muslim addressing islam is getting harder and harder to do without you know, a dozen disclaimers and also referencing christianity and and everything else before you can get started. So I, I do think the the role of um, of ex Muslims in this they they can do so much more than than the rest of us can. I, I agree completely with with Iona that um, that yeah we should all be able to speak to everything and we should have the responsibility to do so consistently and with with liberal principles. But it feels as though in the last in the last three years it has got much much harder to convince even generally reasonable people that that is what you're doing yeah i i it is a huge challenge um <laughs> it is i mean just speaking about uh, i i remember speaking about this many years ago and you know it was tough enough then uh, now especially with the rise of the far right and you know at first you had these sort of the regressive leftists who just wanted to to be dismissive of what you're going through and call you a bigot or a native import informant or, or, or a sellout. And then, uh, you know, and they were being, they were sort of empowering the, the Islamic fundamentalists, you know, usually unintentionally. Uh, and a lot of times they didn't know what they're doing. Um, and now you have this rise of the far right, uh, the populist movement, 
<clears throat> that is empowering the regressive left because they've gone so far out on the other end uh, that anything that we say, look, the, when ex-Muslims come out and voice their criticisms of Islam, a lot of times they're they're co-opted by the far right, and then they they like having people who are from the community who are doing their uh, their their work for them, and they and they try to they offer them platforms. Uh, some of them take it, but the vast majority of ex-Muslims I know, like the vast majority, are are just sort of stuck in the middle, you know, where they're, um, you know, they they don't want to be lumped in with with the whole Trumpian crowd because. This is another far. I mean, the, the reason that most people leave uh, Islam, I mean, it's it's it is a far right ideology, right? Islam and uh, it has a lot in common with all of the other far right elements. You know, the tribalism, the sort of nationalistic sentiment, the us versus them, otherization, uh, uh, the fetishization of identity, and, uh, and you know, this idea that you know we have a monopoly on morality. All all of this stuff is very they have in common. Those are the things they want to run away from, and. Um, so, so obviously, the 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 whole uh, far right rising is is not something that appeals to them, but at the same time, they're very disappointed and they feel betrayed by uh, this regressive leftist element. So, so many of them are are caught in the middle, and um, they they often get attacked from all sides. And and we're not even talking about the side of the, the Islamic fundamentalists who continue to threaten them. Uh, you know, with with terrible things uh, for speaking out, for apostatizing, for being blasphemers. So, so it is a it it is a tough situation, and um, nobody really knows right now how to navigate it, except to just continue speaking out. You know, the idea is that we, we instead of being used for the plat by the platform or being offered platforms by other things, other sides, just just make your own platform. Go out and speak and. You know, one of the biggest problems with discourse currently is that people are very upset by immediate reactions. You know, you say something and then a whole bunch of people, they attack you on Twitter and you go to your at mentions and everyone is just, um, you know, attacking you. And then you either retreat or you issue a quick apology uh, or you get really upset and frazzled, you know, at the least. So, mm, I always get upset and frazzled. I'm uh, in awe of you, actually, because you are the calmest person on Twitter. I, I because um, I, I don't I don't care. <laughs> I get a lot of it. I just first of all, I don't go into my mentions. The other thing is when I do, um, I, I do go into my mentions, but only occasionally. And when I do, I find it very entertaining. And and there's a historical example. Anytime somebody has brought out any kind of different idea that is potentially transformative. Right. And, and this includes the founders of the religions. It includes Muhammad and Jesus. Mm. The moment they did, uh, the very first woman who went to medical school was slut-shamed. The, the very first woman who stepped out of the house to work, uh, the, the very first uh, gay person who came out of the closet openly and said, I'm gay. I mean, these are all people who got fierce and sometimes murderous opposition in the immediate short term. Uh, that's how change happens. But what they did was they, mm -hmm. they believed enough in their cause to weather that storm, um, even often at great risk to their lives, or even at the cost of their lives sometimes. And, and they, 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 they moved on and eventually they changed societies where, you know, those radical ideas, you know, all, all, all of our ideas right now that we, you know, our, our sort of liberal values and uh, every, everything that we enjoy, our civil liberties, our free speech, these were all radical ideas at one point. 
and uh, eventually they become the norm. They become accepted. Uh, and we have to keep the big picture in mind. So I, I always have that. I'm like, you know, if I'm getting immediate opposition, I just think, well, you know, who, who ever came up with a really good idea uh, that was different or that was innovative that did not get immediate opposition from a vast majority of people in, in the short term? Yes, I think as Majid Nawaz once put it, reformers have never been greeted with chocolates and puppies. Of course, yeah, he's, yeah, he's <laughs> absolutely right. And, and the thing is, that, you know, reformers are, even reform is a, is a retrospective designation, right? I mean, mm, nobody, yes. I mean, of course, I mean, I, I love Majid, he's a really good friend of mine. But in, in the past, you know, people who change things like the Enlightenment thinkers of, of, of Europe, for instance, you know, they, they never went out saying, prospectively saying, I'm a reformer. You know, they, they were usually very radical, no holds barred, uh, you know, what you're, how you're describing uh, the, the new atheists. You know, they, they were like that. They were very in your face and they pissed off a lot of people. And, uh, you know, later on, they're the ones who actually brought out reform. It was the extremists who brought out, who eventually brought reform and it, you know, ended up diluting uh, the, you know, sort of Judeo-Christian values that were implemented by governments um, and during that time. And, and now, you know, they brought us secularism and so on. So the the reform that you have is something that we look back on. We say, okay, that was reform. But uh, the, the people who actually brought it about were pretty hardcore. They weren't um, sort of middle of the ground kind of people. So it's a, the dynamics of this is really interesting, seeing it play out in, in social media, how people immediately get, uh, you know, uh, there's immediate reactions. There, you know, people wonder, am I saying the right thing? Is this, this is upsetting a whole lot of people uh, at the same time. Should I really be saying this? Am I wrong? You know, there's a lot of self-doubt that enters the picture. But I, mm. I, I always think uh, just, you know, walk away from it. There's so many things in our lives in 3D that, are amazing, you know. You, you go into the park, you know. I have, you know, my daughter, my family's. You know, you go, you step away from the screen, you go there, and you realize what life is about. And then when you come back and you look at your app mentions, it's actually entertaining, <laughs> more than upsetting. Okay, I'm going to try to keep that in mind. <laughs> try to distance. Since I'm first. very reactive and easily upset. Yeah, I, th I think as as well. I, I I've found that um, when I was getting um, just suddenly attacked out of the blue once or twice a week, it was very upsetting. But recently, I've I've been set upsetting great swathes of people on a on a daily basis, and I get to a saturation <laughs> point where I can just now go through and go, oh yes, look, Nazi, Nazi, libtard, feminist, <laughs> yep, 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 and and just kind of, of dismiss it now. It's um, it's it's sort of lost its power. Yeah. That, well, I, yeah. Ha I have to say those those photos you post of foods all mashed together, <laughs> I do find that rather offensive. <laughs> there, there's, you know what? Amazing. Everything, everybody has something that's going to offend them. And when people ask me, like, you know, why are you writing about this? It's offensive to many Muslims. I, I say, do you know what the Prophet Muhammad did? What I mean, usually Muslim people ask me this. I'm like, do you know what your Prophet Muhammad did? He was chased out of Mecca for blaspheming against the Quraysh. He came back. He smashed the idols of the, the idol gods who these Quraysh considered divine, right? I mean, the, the, it, Jesus, Muhammad, these were all blasphemers. 
They started their careers. I mean, that Jesus got crucified because he, he pissed off a lot of people. I mean, the, this was this is a, a prophetic tradition, I and mean, it's a tradition of of all of the um, people who uh, you know. It, it, it's just uh, I I actually enjoy it. I I have fun with it. I whenever I see trolls who get uh, you know upset about things. I recently had somebody who was mad at me for using the word redneck. Um, which I said as a joke, and and they were this was a Trump supporter and was very very upset that you know I he's like you know that is actually really racist and really offensive to a lot of white people, and I just thought I'm like wow I thought I thought you guys thought political correctness was dead, you know I and <laughs> you couldn't be offended I mean when it's your favorite demographic, then it's offensive. <laughs> And, um, yes, I really enjoy your irreverence towards uh, Trumpanzees, as you call them. Yeah, um, my... Even though, again, I don't, uh-huh. <laughs> I don't do that myself so much. Uh-huh. I don't do that myself so much because I'm really trying hard to reach across the aisle. Yeah, yeah. Um, especially now that I'm involved with Ario, because I do want um, conservatives to still write for us. Yeah, we're leaning left a bit, aren't we? We have to be a bit careful. We get, we're attracting more and more uh, left-leaning um, writers, which is wonderful. But we don't want to get so un- unbalanced that that we're not having any sort of connection with reasonable conservatives. Yeah, yeah. I, I well, uh, you know, what a lot of the people that I associate with tend to be reasonable conservatives, and I have a lot of respect for them. I mean, we've all seen them. We've seen the David Frums and the George Wills and. You know, these mm, guys, uh, Charles mm. Krauthammer, who, who died recently. I mean, I, I remember four or five years ago, I, I dug up these posts where I had written praising him, and I got slammed by a lot of my liberal friends. Uh, but um, there, there are reasoned conservatives. I think that there are different ways to have conversations, and they're all effective in different ways. Um, and I've, I've brought up this example before, but you know, if you look at the civil rights movement and, and some of the key figures you have Rosa Parks, who just acted in silence, said, no, I'm not going to the back of the bus. Uh, you had Martin Luther King, who was a politician, diplomatic, conciliatory, uh, you know, made deals. And then you had Malcolm X, who was completely militant. And, you know, all of them were controversial in their own way. ways. Some people don't like Malcolm X's approach. Some people thought that uh, Martin Luther King's approach was too soft. But all of them... Uh, had an impact. All of those approaches had an impact, and I, I think that uh, you know it also depends on the medium. If you read my book, you'll see that I'm writing very differently than I would on Twitter, which I think is a completely different medium. Um, and mm-hmm. yeah, and the way that I uh, Twitter a lot of that is for my own entertainment as well, because it's kind of people that are on Twitter are just I, I don't know. It's it's hard to resist. Uh, you know, Facebook and Twitter are completely different mediums. And then, you know, when I do public speaking, the way that I speak is different depending on the audience. Um, you know, if I go to a liberal audience, I stress on the hypocrisy of regressive leftists. If I go to more conservative audiences or libertarian audiences who, who I get, you know, invited by um, often, uh, then I I talk about how you know, it's not singling out, out Islam is, is not you know, there, there are uh, the, the, the whole Judeo-Christian values that people sort of respect. I mean, they're not as great as people think that they are. Uh, so I'll bring that bring out that point as well. But it, the idea is to keep each audience a little uncomfortable. And I, I think it's important there are messages that go that, that should go out everywhere 
and everybody has their own blind spots. Um, and then, of course, when you're talking one-on-one in conversation to people, uh, then that that's a whole different um, way that you approach things. Uh, so, I love that idea of keeping each audience a little bit uncomfortable. Yes. Um, because I feel that that's become the greater problem for me. It's not that I'm afraid of offending people. Mm-hmm. It's more that I'm worried about the people who are wholeheartedly agreeing with me. I'm worried about sort of unsavory types agreeing with me. I mean, on perfectly sensible things that I've said. Yeah but which they are obviously using to bolster their much more bigoted arguments. Yes. And in my own case, where I started to have this was with um, the Hindu extremist types, because um, I used to spend a lot of time criticizing Islam. Mm -hmm. And I really stopped because I had such a flow of kind of sewage from the Hindu far right in my mentions. Um, and um, I think that, that there were so many things being confused there. I mean, so many people um, refusing to understand that there's a whole spectrum of Muslims from people who are simply born into Muslim families and are culturally Muslim but probably don't believe in God. Right. Um, or, you know, maybe they believe in God or not, but they don't really talk about it. And I... And, uh, you know, from that to people who are extremely devout, but they have a very um, um, selective version of the religion. So their devotion is is based on praying and doing charitable acts and things like that. Um, It's not focused on um, hatred and bigotry. Mm -hmm. And they kind of ignore those parts. Um, You know, and there's... there's everything in between. And I had so many people claiming that they could, they were, they knew everything they needed to know about any Muslim person by just reading the Quran. Yeah. Reading, you know, taking out the worst parts of the Quran and saying, okay, this is what they follow and it's what is in their heads. And a lot of these people were also, um, the confusing thing was that they were both virulently, virulently um, pro-Hindu, but also claimed to be atheists. Yes. But they were Hindu atheists who feel people should be beheaded for disrespecting Ram, but at the same time, they're atheists in their own minds. Yeah. Um, You know, just, uh, there are so many (sighs) cognitive dissonances happening there. We just had an episode (laughs) with our mutual friend, Zubin Manan, who, like, I think he's in... Oh, it's Zubin. Yeah, he's a brilliant guy, (laughs) fantastic writer, and I told him so on, uh, when he was on, and, and we talked about this, we talked about the sort of uh, really extreme Hindu nationalism and the Hindutva uh, movement that's going on. And it was it was really interesting. And I'm sure I'm going to get a lot of, uh, we're going to get a lot of feedback from that, to put it mildly. But but the, the larger idea of, you know, when you voice, say, criticism of Islam uh, and, and you criticize it and you end up with a whole bunch of uh, sort of uh, anti-Muslim bigots uh, as supporters, you know, this is, um, and, and in in my case, I, I actually attracted a, lo- a lot of them. I, I was uh, I wrote an article, I think, 2014 called "The Phobia of Being Called Islamophobic." I, I think it was mm, called, yeah. Yes. And 
you know, it was just about the idea that, you know, a lot of people are not speaking about Islam because, you know, they're, they're scared of being called Islamophobic. It was just was what I called Islamophobophobia in my book. But this was uh, actually, there's an article now on Breitbart that says, you know, meet Ali Rizvi, Carer's newest enemy. And then suddenly there was this great glowing article about me on Breitbart. And <laughs> this is just not, <laughs> that's the last thing that I wanted. And and I saw it, and, and this was in 2014. So I thought, I was like, okay, maybe it's just a coincidence. And then I started seeing a whole bunch of these other people show up on my, on my, you know, just comment lists and, and tweeting at me and saying, you know, I totally agree with you. We need to kick all Muslims out of the country. And it was, and I was like, that's not what I'm saying at all. And <laughs> it was very, uh, I, I, I was sort of disturbed by that. And it, when the rest of my family and friends were seeing this kind of thing happening, they, they told me, they're like, see what you're doing. You've now attracted all of these bigots and, this is what, why we told you you shouldn't talk about this. Uh, and, then, and then later, you know, a few years later, obviously, we realized that there was this rise. This was a genuine thing that was happening. Um, and a lot of ex-Muslims kind of got caught in the middle of it because they were being co-opted. So, you know, some of the, Helen, some of the disclaimers that you were talking about, you know, that, that you have to sometimes put up. Uh, I know Sarah Hader um, from ex-Muslims of North America often has... Uh, you know, when she gets a lot of new followers, you know, she has a three-tweet thread that she that she puts out each time, uh, saying that you know, just to let you know, I am a liberal and I am a feminist and I am not an anti, I'm not a bigot of any sort, uh, so that you know, people know. I mean, she she's conscious of that too, and I think a lot of them, a lot of people I know, as, as you say, Iona, where you stopped when you saw the Hindutva reaction, you kind of stopped the criticism of some. Um, I know uh, I know a lot of people who've gone through that experience and they've especially in this era they've started uh you know slowing it down a little bit. I I I think that they should continue uh talking about it but but they should um you know also stay consistent and uh, you know keep it about the ideas not about Islam itself but just you know the things about Islam that what are the different aspects of it that you find toxic and 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 um, you know uh, 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 unpalatable, and uh, there are many other ideologies like that too. And and usually people are not uh, you know single issue uh, people. They usually talk about a broad range of mm. things about bad ideas. And I, I think that when you frame it in that context, you can continue to do it and and not be misunderstood. I I, I think that in most people who know me know that I'm a critic of Islam. Uh, they they understand that. They understand that I'm not apologetic about it, but at the same time, they they know that I have no sympathy towards Trump or or his supporters just because they think all Muslims should be banned. They know that I'm opposed to that as well. Um, I, I did want to ask you because in this, uh, um, James Lindsay and I we we wrote about the sort of existential polarization that is going on, where where people are are increasingly feeling the need to take a side against the worst of the other side, mm -hmm. and this is sort of causing them to internalize some of the the bad ideas on their own side. And I'm thinking if if people who are, you know, particularly um, afraid of the, of the far right uh, starting to internalize some of the sort of identity based and, and quite illiberal ideas on the left and those who 
are most afraid of of the um, sort of authoritarian far left that are internalizing some of the ideas on the on the um, on the right. And I was thinking as you were speaking, as if if people are going further and further outwards in this way, that's leaving the space of platforms and support for ex-Muslims getting increasingly thin. Uh, what what would you say to people who 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 want to support the sort of the a, a liberal take a liberal stance towards supporting um, ex Muslims, liberal Muslims, reforming Muslims, while criticizing um, in no uncertain terms the the most illiberal aspects of of Islam, and they're, and they're getting fearful of of supporting the wrong side. What? You've already spoken a bit about that. You, you've said to them to, to try and just stay consistent and, and focus on the ideas. Is there is there anything you'd add I, to that? What what I, should I we think do? There there are some people that actually do it. They do they do it very successfully. And and the, one of the most prominent examples of it is Bill Maher. If you look at Bill Maher's show, he's he's very popular. He's still very beloved by the left. And you know, even though a lot of people have had problems with him, um, uh, he's unabashedly liberal. Um, but at the same time, he, he does not hold back when he talks about Islam or, or religion, right? Uh, and, uh, you know, he does it and his, his message is pretty clear. People know where he stands. And I think that that is possible. I think that you, the one thing to remember, I think, is it comes down to fearing immediate reactions. Uh, when you're very worried about what everybody else is going to say, then, you know, it'll affect what what you talk about when when you don't want to be seen as far right you don't want you know i i'm constantly i i have this i i like to talk about how i was called a neo-nazi by you know and uh a muslim guy in pakistan in the same day that i was called a social justice you know regressive whatever the terminology is by somebody uh on, on the right and and it happened on the same day and it was great because i, t- I took a screenshot i think i sent it to armin I th- like we we have days like that all the time. Um, and it, it, it just is what it is. I, I don't think you can help it. The fact that uh, you're getting so much reaction and it's riling up people that they're commenting on you like that, I think it probably means that you you may be doing something right. But uh, I, I, I am not a fan of trying to fit in with one side or the other, I, I'm not a huge fan of a lot of these labels either. Like you know, social justice warrior. I th- there's a lot of things about social justice that I completely align with. You know, I'm I'm here because of a lot of people who fought for social justice. That, that's why I am, I, I am who I am. That's why I'm living the life I am. At the same time, you know, you have that uh, the hypocrisy of of many people who are supposed to be on the social justice left. You know, when it comes to um, uh, you know, when, when it comes to Christianity, they're going to slam Pat Robertson and all these Southern evangelical preachers all the time. But if uh, somebody who happens to be Muslim says the exact same, say, misogynistic or homophobic things, they, they will throw their hands up and say, oh, no, we have to respect their culture. That hypocrisy is something that I don't want to associate with. You know, take other sort of issues that people talk about identity politics a lot. And, and the left certainly has this idea of, you know, fetishizing uh, uh, minorities, and, and you know, despite the fact that many of these minority uh, groups come are, are ideological groups uh, that may have very conservative, illiberal values, 
but they embrace them because of their you know their this this ethic of of just protecting minorities and and at whatever cost and defending them at whatever cost so you you have that issue but then on the on the right you have the identity politics of nationalism and and uh, sort of fetishizing judeo-christian heritage and european heritage and you know race realism and identitarianism and so so there are you know the, the freedom of speech is another thing you know you have the on the left you have people shouting down uh speakers who go to colleges um you know the, everything that's happening on college campuses and then you know on the, the on the on the right you have the 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 leader of the right the president of the united states saying that nfl players should be fired for uh, kneeling and and you know in, in front of the national flag when the national anthem is playing you know and uh, that sports that that libel law should be opened up so that journalists can be tried, you know, they can be uh, prosecuted for uh, writing things that he doesn't like. So, you know, you have these are elements that people often associate with one side or the other, but they're they're universal. They're on either side. So, I don't find much value in trying to say, okay, I don't like what's happening on college campuses, so I'm going to go and align myself with. Uh, what's happening what the conservatives are doing I, I i think it's it's all over the place and mm. it really should be about the issue itself rather than um which side it's coming from yeah i think i agree i mean i think that's true for um criticizing your own side as well that i think it's key to be fearless about both the opposition that you're going to receive and also the people who are going to agree with you. You just have to keep in, a, in as nuanced a way as possible, in, in as clear a way as possible and specific a way, talking about the things that you feel are important to talk about. Right. Um, or you feel most qualified to speak about. So I talk mostly about the left and I talk a great deal about academe. Well, Helen, much more, even more than me. And, um, and about language usage on the left, because those are things that I understand and am interested in. Um, and I feel as though um, uh, a lot of people are extremely stymied by um, a paranoia about how things are going to be interpreted, yes. who you will be seen to be aligned with or adjacent to, which is the new sort of insult. You are such and such adjacent um, oh. <laughs> you know, so you're not actually you're not actually part of that ideology. You're just somehow on a on a similar track. Um, you know, yeah, or you're a gateway drug to it. That's that's a good one. Uh, right. I think you have to just keep being quite clear and specific. Yes, um, and not and not do the Dave Rubin thing and become an actual apologist. So I think this is. Um, I, I don't want to talk about Rubin very much because this is not about him, but I think that he is an example of someone who, um, whether sincerely or insincerely or or whatever, I can't you know um, speak to his motivations, but uh, seems to argue that if you dislike certain things on your own side, then you need to just go over to the other side. I Rather than staying to criticize, yeah, that, and that's you know what that's tempting, and I like I, I have to say, I mean, I, I looked at Breitbart and I just wasn't a fan of it when they wrote that article about me. But for somebody who doesn't necessarily have a platform, nobody's listening to what they're saying. If you're a frustrated ex-Muslim, and they're like, "Well, you know, these guys are the left and not they betrayed me," but at least Breitbart's giving me a platform. 
that can be very tempting and alluring for people. And I've heard Ruben say this kind of thing that, you know, you know I am a liberal, but mm. liberals don't invite me to universities. Conservatives do. So now I'm going to be like, more, we got to get rid of all the Democrats. So, so that kind of thinking is, is very, it's, it's just really simplistic and I'm being <laughs> euphemistic here. Uh, the, um, yeah, I, I don't, yes. I, I don't think that that's the right way to go because that is the kind of tribalism that that we all want to, you know, reject in the first place. And and, and you will talk about the things that are familiar to you, right? Um, you know, as as you're saying that, you know, you talk about the left because you know that's what you feel is your side. I talk about Islam because that's what I grew up in. Uh, I didn't grow up in Christianity or anything. Mm-hmm. And Richard mm-hmm. Dawkins talks about Christianity because that's what he grew up in. And he's most familiar with, uh, so, and and now yes, we do talk about other things as well. But those are the things that we are critical of, uh, because we're we're very we're very close to them, and that, and and also fascinated by because we're yeah, close to it's them. Uh, I mean I I find I, I that's the stuff that I'm most interested in. I'm I'm very well versed when it comes to the Quran. I, I'm not as you know, I've read the Bible and the Old Testament, but I don't know about the history of it in as much detail as I do with the Quran and Islamic history, which, which I'm extremely familiar with and I've studied for decades. So, mm-hmm. so there is a, mm-hmm. and that's what I'm going to comment on because that's that's not only part of my lived experience, but uh, th- that's what I have been interested in, what has been an integral part of my life. It's it's what I grew up with. So um, uh, people. You know, the people will say things. People are always going to say things. <laughs> this is just you. You can't. Uh, <laughs> the worst thing to do is get get um, f- feel silenced by it. I think that there's uh, when you become and and I say this especially with with both of both of you, Helen and Iona. When you become at at a point where you know you have developed large followings and fast growing followings because of your ideas and what you're saying, you are going to get more opposition and um, mm-hmm. and you're going to move mm-hmm. into the space where initially when you said things and a few people said things that were hurtful in response, then, you know, you would feel tempted to just back down. But now you're at a point where you're going to get that all the time. That comes with the territory. People will slam you for everything that you're saying. And then when you do, I, you just have to become dispassionate and just uh, just look at it for what it is. Think of this as part of the territory. When you're involved in this business where you're challenging things uh, that other people find sacred, uh, when you're bringing up controversial points, when you're, you're, the, your topics of conversation are the two things they tell you not to talk about at work, religion and politics. <laughs> if you do that, and, and you get, you just can't afford to be upset at uh, the opposition that you're going to get. You just have to, I, I would try and draw more energy from that instead and, and use that as motivation to continue, you know, doing what you're doing. Mm, that's such great advice. Thank you. <laughs> You know, I I I, hope, I I really mean it though. I really hope you guys keep on doing what you're doing, Helen. The work that you guys did with the with the SoCal Squared, oh, yes, that was just incredible. I had no idea that that you were involved with that, and it just kind of just sprung out of nowhere in all of these papers, and it was just one of the most brilliant and funniest things I've seen. So, oh, I'm I'm so glad you saw it that way because a lot of people that I um 
I respected and and still respect um haven't and have unfortunately seen it as as an attack on um studying race or gender or sexuality but um yeah I think most people get it that so I'm I'm pleased thank you <laughs> yeah I, I I don't think a lot of people um sometimes they don't understand uh who who is in on the joke and who is being joked about you know mm. uh, that that's i think a distinction especially nowadays people don't really understand that you know mm. they think that uh like in um like well i was gonna give a far out example of this this movie tropic thunder did uh-huh. you guys ever see that <laughs> or <should> we... no <laughs> oh you didn't okay Tell us about Go it. Go ahead. <laughs> it's a Ben Stiller movie. Where ben Stiller, there are a bunch of actors, and they they go out to shoot a movie, and uh, you know it, they end up in. I'm not going to go into too much detail, but the characters are sort of Ben Stiller is this sort of uh, this not very bright actor who decides to he wants to win an Academy Award and he wants to do more serious dramatic movies, so he decides to play somebody who's uh, disabled uh, or handicapped, right? Because that always gets you an Oscar. And Robert Downey Jr. is another actor, and he is a famous, he's a dramatic actor who is now doing the role of a black man, and he's a method actor, and he's wearing blackface in the movie the entire time. He's one one of the few uh, actors in a a Ben Stiller comedy that got nominated for a Best Supporting Oscar, in any case, which he did. And people were very offended by a lot of stuff that was happening in the movie, but the joke was actually it wasn't uh that they were mocking disabled people or they were they they were mocking black people by you know wearing blackface it was the idea that a lot of actors they will go to great lengths just to win academy awards um mm-hmm. and exploit all kinds of stereotypes all right so it was that that was the, that was the thing i i don't know why i thought of that example it's way, way out there, I'm going to watch it now. I'm going to cue it on my Netflix. Yeah, but I, I, I think about that a lot. I think you know when people miss the point and the controversy mm. becomes about you know people who just completely missed and and did not get the joke at all, or who was mm. being satirized. And, and yeah, that's a lot of I the think time. Really, sorry, with with, with um, Charlie Hebdo, for example, when yes. trying desperately to explain that these they are mocking and being critical of racists, they are not being racist in this this one cartoon. And yeah, trying to explain, I am. We are looking at bad scholarship, which does nobody any good. Not the supposed beneficiaries of this scholarship it's you just feel like you're talking to a wall a lot of the time trying to trying to get through to what the actual point is and i'm i've I've had so many rants about point missing on it and i just don't know what the yeah. answer is <laughs> i think we're working I, well, different you know schemas. one one of the answers one of the things that we can learn from donald trump which he is really good at and this is a this is a massive compliment to donald trump is that he he knows how to pick up on how his audience is thinking, and he knows how to express things in a way that they will understand. You know, you, you'll notice that everything's very simple. You know, make America great again, or you know, when you had Sarah Palin saying "drill, baby, drill," and uh, you know, death panels for the healthcare and Obamacare. Mm. They they come up with nice buzzwords. You know, axis of evil, et cetera, et cetera. They they come up with these words that are very very easy for people or build the wall yeah they're very easy for people to chant and say and and they also get the exact meaning that they want 
to get across yeah, across. The feeling. That's yeah. something that we, yeah, the, when we talk about, uh, on, on the left, we, um, I, I mean, I, I lean left and I lean liberal, obviously. But the, when, when I, I feel like we don't have our messaging right in a way that it appeals to people since some Obama, you know, we simple hope, change, change we can believe in and all that. Uh, in some, we, we need a way to say things uh, that people can connect to uh, emotionally, not just uh, not just cerebrally. Mm. And uh, satire is 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 really important for this. And I, I think that you know one of the other instances we're talking about people you know satirizing people and people missing the satires. I think it's it's actually more important. Uh, than sometimes the other sort of intellectual and cerebral discourse we have. And, you know, like Kim Jong-un, who's sitting in North Korea, has op-eds written about him every day. You know, he has books written about him. There are conferences mm -hmm. discussing what to do with North Korea, world leaders getting together and talking about North Korea. And he probably feels really good. He's like, you know, well, I'm a player on the world stage. Everybody takes me seriously. You know, I'm just like all of them. And then Seth Rogen comes out and makes a movie where he gets his head blown off and he's made fun of, right? And the guy loses his shit. He went nuts. He hacked the entire thing, shut down the, all of the theaters that, you know about that incident, right? The movie, uh, the interview. Mm, yes, I, I heard about that. I saw a lot of the buzz around it. Yeah, so the, I, the point I was trying to make is that satire really gets to these people like often serious and serious discourse won't and it's the same thing with the jihadists you know they will um you can write all the op-eds criticizing them uh, and all the articles and you know have conferences about it and they're they're fine but the moment you draw cartoons or you do something that mocks them that's what drives them nuts because <laughs> the the thing that they fear most is not being taken seriously right and and you you see mm. this with trump as well i mean he you know, the people write articles about him all the time. The moment a celebrity makes fun of him or someone makes fun of his hands or, or something like that, that's the stuff that really gets under his skin. And and there's a uh, there there's an insecurity there. It's that's why satire and all these things are very powerful. And my fear is that often everything is uh, you know when we try to look at everything seriously. Uh, people miss out on that. There's there's actually a way people write forward slash s when they're trying to be sarcastic so that other people know they're sarcastic, which is just so sad. Mm -hmm. Yes, it's very sad. And I feel that, I mean, that's one of the things that makes me most uncomfortable with religion is that although I don't feel this kind of urge to be satirical um, about it and I'm not good at satire, Nevertheless, when I encounter people who take it very seriously, even if it's quite a, um, um, even if it's quite a seemingly benevolent, harmless version of religion that they are taking seriously, whatever religion it might be, um, nevertheless, as soon as I get that sensation, I think it's very. Um, it's very dangerous. As soon as you have an area which you cannot make fun of, that's when people's responses can become very extreme, um, very oppressive, very violent, really quickly. Yes. And 
you know, the, the, I people associate their religion with their identity, and it's again the premise of my book is that whole the toxic um, integration of you know the ideology into people's sense of identity, and you know, if I come up to you and I say that I don't believe in quantum physics, you would just think, okay, all right, you're crazy. It's all right. We'll just talk later. But if I tell you that I don't think that the Quran was written by Muhammad or by God, then, you know, there's some people who would get much, much more upset at that. You know, people will be more offended if you say you don't believe in evolution than if you say that you don't believe in, uh, you know, any other uh, scientific theory mm. or relativity or whatever. Uh, and there's a reason for that. And the reason is because the, the, those, a theory like evolution, something like, you know, the claim of uh, you know, that the God wrote the Quran, the, these are things that are, they're no different from beliefs and, like, you know, anything else. But the reason that if you say you don't believe in them, that people get offended by it is is because um, they take it as an attack, attack on their identity. Mm. Um, when, mm. when you draw cartoons mm. of Muhammad, you know, there there are Muslim people. They're not upset because they're seeing a cartoon, or even because they chose the the beliefs. They didn't choose the belief. You know, it's a it's, it was indoctrinated in them because they were born into a Muslim family. But the reason they get upset is they say that you know this is insult to me, to my ancestors, to my heritage, and and even the people who are Muslims themselves often have a very difficult time separating. Uh, Islamic ideology from Muslim identity. And I have found almost always, you know, th this is something that still surprises me to this day, is that if I explain this to people before having a conversation, if I set the stage for the conversation by saying that, okay, you know, I'm going to be talking about Islamic ideology, that's different from Muslim identity, and I, I lock down a connection on the identity because I share that with them. Mm they're much more receptive mm -hmm. to talking about ideas. Mm -hmm. And in fact, they even come forward um, with their own doubts about the ideology sometimes. Mm. It sounds know, like good they, psychology, they feel, yeah. Yeah, because, because you've disarmed uh, the aspect of it that's offensive. So as I'm very, I'm very convinced that the reason that people do take offense and they get upset, um, when, even when it comes to trivial criticisms of beliefs, is because uh, they they actually feel uh, like their their sense of identity is being attacked, their family is being attacked, and often when you criticize Muhammad, people say, "Well, you know, how would you like it if I said something about your mother?" That's how I feel. Yeah, you know, they they right, yes, they've really internalized it um, uh, to a point where where they feel connected with it in, in a much more sort of visceral way than just an idea that they they believe in so I, I find it very useful to explain that before you know setting the stage for the conversation before having the conversation mm -hmm. um mm. i used to have well i think it's f oh sorry uh, i was just because I, I used to have as my uh, my pin tweet was i'm i'm very critical of religion i'm very concerned about a lot of the ethics around it i like and respect many religious people and i had so many religious people say to me that they liked that and I, I, yes. I think that ties very much into what Ali was just saying and um, is uh, something we need to give more thought to, perhaps on, on more levels, um, yeah, outside religion as well. That, that's, a, that's a great point, Helen. Like, so if you notice, if you just say that, 
if you say that, you know, I, I don't like the religion, I don't like, you can be as brutal as you want about the religion. I don't like this religion. I think that, you know, it's very oppressive and so on personally, but, you know, I have a, I have a lot of, but people have the right to believe what they want. And I will, I will always defend the rights of uh, religious people to believe what they want and to disagree with me. Immediately, you will notice that religious people will be much more receptive to that as well. You know, it's if you just make that distinction between criticizing ideas and demonizing people, which I repeat mm. so much, I feel like everybody should know it. But, you know, apparently it still requires a lot of repetition. That's what we're to take away. Well, also, you know, um, when you're in the in-group and um, you're with the other people from your kind of identity, your group, then then you can make fun of yourself in a much more no-holds-barred manner. Right. Because you feel as though all of the mockery is done from a um, a good natured place. Yes. So you know, if you're around a group of other Parsis and you can make fun of Parsi things, much more to much more extreme level than if somebody who's not Parsi comes to make fun of them. Yeah. Because then you feel threatened. You don't know is this person joking or are they actually expressing some something that is more hatred fueled or um you know like you can say the n-word around other african-americans yeah. yeah um you know that's this that's the same kind of kind of phenomenon it is because because you don't know where it's coming from you know i uh for, right like if i make a joke about islam and i'm joking about how certain aspects of islam of islam are you know saying something that may be offensive but sarcastic and then uh you know, if, if a, a, a really avid Trump supporter comes and says the same thing, uh, then he, even I, at this point, I will wonder if he's coming from it, you know, if he's coming to it from the same place that I came to it from, you know, mm -hmm. and, and to some extent, there's no way to tell. Uh, but, uh, but to a lot of people, I think that that is, that that's a huge difference. You know, it's like, you know, if you have your kids and you criticize your kids and you complain about your kids to your friend, and supposing your friend turns around and says, yeah, I agree, your daughter is really a pain in the ass, then suddenly you'll be <laughs> like, hey, I, I'm saying that. You can't say that about my kid. So, it's, uh, it's, it's kind of, I mean, it works at every level. I think it's a very natural thing to feel that way. Yeah, probably something we should think more about mm. when we go into conversations. Yeah, I think that's important. Although it would be nice to desensitize ourselves a little bit more to being mocked by other people. Mm -hmm. um, so, for example, I think we should have a, um, you know, to give a very trivial example, the Halloween thing, yes. which just recently happened. And, um, you know, a friend of mine wanted to go to Halloween wearing one of my saris. Um, and I knew that the person whose party it was would not approve of this. Yes. Um, in fact, she had said to me, we need to kind of teach Argentines about cultural appropriation. It's <laughs> <laughs> like, I'm not sure I'm the best ally in this, but I didn't say yeah. anything. <laughs> but anyway, it's, it's her party and I don't, you know, so therefore her rules and that's fine. Um, and I was trying to explain to this friend why she couldn't kind of just wear a sari and put a bindi on her forehead and go to the Halloween party. Although as far as I'm concerned, it would be totally okay. Yeah. And she just couldn't get it at all. Um, uh, she was just like, "What?" <laughs> um, yeah, 
you know, from a kind of normal, commonsensical person's point of view, she just couldn't see. She was just like, but I like, <laughs> sorry. I know. Um, and um, I feel that I would, I think next year I want to have a party where cultural appropriation is compulsory. <laughs> yes. <laughs> where everybody has to come dressed up as a caricature of another culture. <laughs> preferably of the culture of somebody who's at the party um yeah so that we can all laugh at ourselves no, you know that, that that's the spirit of things and i think that's good you know this is the thing with with cultural appropriation is that you know when you're doing it to mock another culture then then yes it's a you know of course it's a problem like you know with blackface or when people do that with native americans but if you're doing it if gwen stefani wore a sari when she went to india right I mean, that's not. Uh, yeah, she did it out of appreciation for what it looked like. She she liked that aspect. If you didn't do that, then uh, and and the the funny thing is like the, the Indian people mostly love it because most people in that part of the world don't even know what it means cultural appropriation. Mm -hmm. Like you know they. I remember when we used to see a, a guy, you know, white guy wearing shalarkamis, or someone, you know, any any foreigner wearing shalarkamis, which is the national dress of, of Pakistan and and India even. You know, we used to think we're like, oh, this is great. We used to like seeing. Uh, we used to feel like, okay, our culture has an influence. There are people who've seen it and they like some things about it and they they appreciate it. It was it was a big compliment. We never really thought of it as anything offensive. Now, if somebody was doing it to mock us, that would be that would be a completely different story. So, I think in some ways it's not about the mockery; it's about people are very afraid. And this may also tie back into, um, you know, why I was so, I so much appreciated and enjoyed your book. Because you were, on the one hand, um, rejecting um, beliefs in the supernatural, irrational, the irrational parts of religion, but you were reclaiming the culture. Yes. Because I think the fear of cultural appropriation is very much a uh, second generation diaspora thing right. and it's being a kind being a second generation diaspora girl myself mm -hmm. um i i can i can empathize with this um you know i can sort of understand uh i'm wearing a farohar which is the zoroastrian angel uh yeah. symbol um and which i uh always wear and I feel, I don't know, I, I mean, on the one hand, I'm not going to stop anybody else from wearing one if they want to. Uh, you can go ahead and wear one if you think it looks pretty. <laughs> I, I don't mind. Um, but if everybody wore one, I think I might feel a little bit threatened. Yeah. I feel as though, wait, but I'm special. Now <laughs> <laughs> you I'm no longer special and exotic. There's... And I think it was one... It was sorry. Uh, I, yeah. I just finished briefly, but it was one of the times I most empathize with Linda Sarsu, who is not somebody I have a lot of time for. Yeah. Um, but uh, in one interview, she said the reason she started wearing hijab is that when she put on hijab, she was someone different and exotic. And without hijab, I think that uh, she didn't say exactly that. But I think what she did say, more or less, word for word, is. When I don't, when I'm not wearing hijab, I'm just another white girl from Brooklyn. Yeah, yeah, I. I thought that was very revealing. Mm, there are some things that uh, do become symbols of identity in a way, and uh, 
I talk about this when I uh, sometimes uh, in in my um, talks as I give the example, like in, if you take the example of hijab, you know, there, there are many young girls, I mean, and I know them personally, these young girls who are told by their parents to wear the hijab and they're struggling with it. They live in Western societies and they rebel against their parents and they say, uh, you know, why should I wear this? What does it mean? Why is it compulsory? And they, they want to take it off. And they have this internal struggle at home, the, the natural kind of rebellion. And they go to high school. They want to be like all the other girls. You know, they they, they want to do things with their hair, whatever the reason may be. You want to take them off. And, and then what happens is suddenly there is this external thing, uh, attack against the hijab and uh, you know, someone someone's talking about a Muslim ban, and they're talking about deporting Muslims or whatever it is. And suddenly they say, "Well, okay, no, screw you. I'm going to keep this on." Now it becomes a symbol of identity, right? And and it's uh, even though there is a struggle, they they don't agree with the ideology of it because now they're they're looking at it as an identity thing. Mm-hmm. You know, they they will keep it on, and and they will um, take any you know take any attack on it much, much more personally. This is, again, that whole, you know, amalgamation of ideology and identity. And, and this is why I think it's so important for to, to separate criticism of religion from demonization of religious people. Uh, because yeah. what it does is, uh, you know, you have somebody who's already on the way to questioning the ideology, and the moment you start demonizing them as people, they revert back to a tribal identity in defense and and that's a that's a really really toxic um thing as well well i do think there's no shortcut to knowing the person and understanding the person uh, yes. everybody's motivations background is different and i also on a more kind of radical level i'm a non-believer in free will mm-hmm. um i've really been very convinced by sam harris's views on this so i i feel that you want to work on the influences, you want to work on the ideas, you want to nudge people in good directions, but demonizing people doesn't make sense to me. No, it doesn't. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I, um, as much as I like making fun of, you know, the Trumpanzies and the fundamentalist uh, Islamic, you know, you know, when it comes to social media and stuff, but one-on-one, mm, mm. Um, I do know a lot of people. I, mm. I actually have friends who are Islamic fundamentalists who I correspond with. Armin does too. Armin and I both do. And it's, uh, mm. when it comes to one-on-one conversations, it's, it's always a completely different uh, dynamic. And, and you always treat people with, with respect. You, you know, you respect their choices. Uh, sorry, you respect their right to make certain choices. You don't, right. even yes. if you don't respect yes. the choice itself. Absolutely. So. I think one of the things about hijab, though, which um, is not just true of Islam, but more more true generally, um, and was certainly most definitely strongly true in Hinduism and in Indian culture in general also, is that um, it's the women who are expected to uphold the tradition. It's, you know, your identity is vested in the woman dressing a certain way and behaving a certain way and following certain rules. I mean, I know there are also rules for men, but uh, very often the rules are more relaxed for men. Yes. It's, it's and it's the women who are carrying the kind of burden of, um, you know, the man is in Western clothes, but the woman needs to be in sari because they're a good Hindu family, you know, 
And the guy is going out doing whatever he needs to do. But the woman needs to be at home and the woman needs (laughs) to be cooking and the woman needs to be praying. And it's always the women who are lighting the candles and the divas and banging the little bells and things at home. Yeah, I I couldn't agree with you more. I think that the whole, you know, when we talk about um, victim blaming, the whole background of religious background of hijab was that women would keep their hair covered so they're not as seductive. Uh, to men, so as if the uh, you know the whole responsibility for a man's lust, um, which is apparently uncontrollable, was was on the woman by looking less seductive. So mm-hmm. it's uh, it, it was a symbol of oppression. That's how it started out. And you know, my my wife has a great analogy uh, where she talks about how the um, you know the, the hijab is a little bit like the Confederate flag. You know, you have the right to fly it around and to don one if you want to. That's your freedom of expression. But uh, don't forget the history and the and the historical use of that symbol. Mm. 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 Yes, I mean it really does. You know, I also have to cover my hair to go into the agiari, mm-hmm. but I feel so differently about it because men have to do the same thing. Yeah, it's uh, that, um, that changes things, and th- there's a different reason. Yes, <laughs> like skull caps yeah. and everything. It, there's a different. Yes, men also have to. In fact, uh, women, um, both sexes can wear either a headscarf or a little hat. Yeah. Um, uh, and a lot of women choose. Not many men wear a scarf, although I have seen it happen. Yeah. Where I think men forgot their hat and then they just took out a handkerchief, <laughs> but. Um, but women can certainly wear the little hat. Yeah. And that to me changes everything. Okay, it's you can say it's still religious bollocks, and I'm sure Helen will, because she thinks this is totally irrational. <laughs> She's not even I, I touching that. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah. But it's equal equal opportunity bollocks. Uh, yes, I, I agree. Um, that does make a difference. <laughs> I, I think I think I think we let, <laughs> let Ali go to his um to his, and relieve his family of his baby. <laughs> oh yeah, actually, that's a yes, little. Yes, we probably. Yeah, I should <laughs> probably go. Have to. It's it's almost bedtime for the kid now. So I I've been wanting to to, to talk to you for uh, very because the, this is a thing with Twitter. I mean, you have people who you really admire and you and you love the way they write and you have a lot of respect for them, but you don't know them. So hopefully, I mean, now we've gone to um, this uh, podcast format, and hopefully one day in real life we'll be able to sit down in three dimensions and. And have tea together. That would be great. Tea. (laughs) Ali, I'm aware that your time is limited. Thank you so much for having come on the podcast. And I want to ask if you have any final thoughts that you'd like to share before we close. Um, uh, No, not in particular. I I just say that, you know, speak out as much as you can. I mean, you it's not just because you're not part of a certain community doesn't mean you can't talk about it. You can't try to understand their experiences. I mean, you you wouldn't have, you know, the, the gay rights movement required a lot of people, straight allies. The, the civil rights movement uh, for black people required a lot of allies who were, who were not black. Everybody was able to get in on the conversation and talk about it and propel that forward. Um, there were a lot of male allies, a lot of men who supported feminist movements. And in the, in the same way, you know, you can if with this with ex-Muslims, you know, you, you don't have to, and even with Muslims, you you can be outside of it, outside of the community, and you can speak about it. I think one of the worst things about discourse today is 
uh, people say you can't speak about something if you haven't had the experience. And I think it's quite the opposite. And I, I, if, I, I don't think we would have had any progress, anything, any of the major milestones that we've reached historically uh, without you know, people who were not part of a certain group uh, actually supporting that group and, and trying to understand their experiences and, and speaking for them as well. So um, that's, I think, the one thing that I, I try to stress. I mean, the, you know, when people talk about terrorism, it's, it's not just about a few people being blown up here and there, a few bombs and bodies. It's, it's about fear. It's about getting people to be, to, to be quiet. It's about uh, you know, making them so scared that they won't speak up. Uh, they, they won't say what they actually think. So you know, if you think that you're trying to counter terrorism by not saying certain things, well, you know, the moment you're not saying these things and you're holding back, you have already become a victim of it. So it's, uh, I think that's the most important thing right now in the way that people are talking is they're afraid to speak up and they, they really should, um, mm. you know, speak up and you know, not be afraid to be aligned with any label or another. We we won't stay in our lanes, I promise. Yeah, please. That's great. <laughs> no, well, I've just come from India to Argentina, so nobody stays in their lane even driving here. <laughs> so I have plenty of role models. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> People swerve all over the place. Um, so yeah. I, I think that's a wonderful note to end on. Um, thank you, Ali. Um, where can people find your your work? So I will link in the show notes to the book. And they can follow you on Twitter mm-hmm. at Ali Amjad Rizvi. Yeah. The, the only thing I'd add is the Secular Jihadist podcast. So we have a podcast, Armin Navabi and I, called Secular Jihadist for a Muslim Enlightenment. Um, and, uh, you know, we've had a lot of great guests, a lot of people, ex-Muslims from around the world uh, who have spoken on it, uh, who have spoken openly from Egypt, from uh, Pakistan, from from uh, Bangladesh, and so on. We've had uh, Sam Harris, we've had Steven Pinker, Majid Nawaz, Mariam Namazi. We've had some really, really amazing conversations on that. So if if you would like to know more about yeah. this and know more, your interest in this topic, yeah, definitely check out the podcast. Wonderful. Thank you so much, Ali. It's been such a pleasure. Thank you. You've been listening to Two for Tea, the accompanying podcast for ARIO magazine. ARIO is a non-partisan political and cultural digital magazine with a universal liberal humanist slant, edited by Helen Pluckrose with the assistance of sub-editor Yours Truly. At ARIO, we hope to counter the current atmosphere of frenzied partisanship and hysteria with calm, well-reasoned articles and civil discussions. Both ARIO and Two for Tea are entirely audience-supported. You, our readers and listeners, make these conversations possible. You can support the magazine, the podcast, or both on Patreon. Look for ARIO, A-R-E-O, A for Apple, R for Robert, E for Edward, O for Orange, and Two for Tea. All patrons will get access to free monthly patron-only podcasts and other perks. Plus, by becoming a patron, you will keep these platforms alive and flourishing. Two for Tea is available on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, and all other podcast subscription sites. If you're listening on a podcast app, take a moment to hit that subscriber button, give us a rating, 
write us a brief review, even just a couple of words. Spread the news. Thank you so much for listening. Have a wonderful week.